But Prince Caspian is probably the most completed character sketch you have outside the children. Um, Prince Caspian is a well-developed character. If you read all three of those chronicles, you'll go with them from boyhood uh, to to being an older man. Um, Prince Caspian was written or at least published in 1951. Can I give you a time frame? Now, you know, I even find it fun that there's some... um, He's he's English. We won't say British. They prefer you call them English. He's English. He's an Oxford scholar. He's writing in the 50s. So there's a little bit of a cultural gap there. Like you probably not once this week have said, Great Scott. Well, that's an exclamation in the book, Great Scott. By the way, who is Scott? I love teach literature. Um, Sir Walter Scott. It was a nice way of saying, you know, great God, not use God as an exclamation, kind of like gosh for God. Um, you know, great, great Scott became a way to have an exclamation and not, not take God's name in vain. But at least for the people in the United Kingdom, great Scott is Sir Walter Scott. Some Americans thought it was Winf- Winfred Scott, who was a general at the beginning of the, war, of the Civil War. But anyway, there, there's some language in here that goes back to the 1950s. And actually, and C.S. Lewis is doing this, he is writing during what we call the Edwardian era. Any of you watch, any of you watch um, Downton, is that what it's called, Downton Abbey? Yeah, that's the Edwardian era. That's the, that's the period uh, before the First World War. And again, C.S. Lewis was, was, was born in 1898. Uh, so he grew up during the Edwardian era. So these stories are set even earlier than when they were written. They're set in the Edwardian era. Um, by the way, when did C.S. Lewis die? 63, he died the same day John F. Kennedy was assassinated. That's why you probably didn't notice when he died. But he died the same day John F. Kennedy was assassinated. But that was his lifespan. But these stories are set during the Edwardian era. So some of the language, by the time he wrote in the 50s, was already a little out of date, but he's putting these kids back at the same period in which he was raised uh, during the Edwardian era, like Downton Abbey. But um, so that's sort of who Prince Caspian is. Um, Prince Caspian is, he's, he's Caspian the 10th. What you're going to learn in the text is, um, we're going to look at it in just a moment. He, he, he is the king of Narnia who becomes the rightful king of Narnia, uh, makes the second deliverance for Narnia, the second war of deliverance, the first one being in the line of the witch in the wardrobe against the white witch. Um, But what happens is you'll see in the story, it's a very simple story, Prince Caspian. It's a very simple story. Um, I, I hate to say this. I like Voyage of the Dawn Treader a whole lot more so if I kind of push through to get to Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Prince Caspian is rather simple. In a lot of ways, what's happening with Prince Caspian is you're, you're getting the backstory, you're getting the character development so that you can enjoy the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is absolutely an amazing story with amazing stories throughout the journey of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, but Prince Caspian um, becomes the new ruler in Narnia. Uh, what has happened is this, and we'll go to the text. What has happened is this. Uh, After the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, the four Pevensey children go home, back to England, 
back through the wardrobe, back to their time period. They go home. Uh, they're home for about a year. And they're getting ready to go back to school when they get sucked back into Narnia. Now what happens, um, time in Narnia and time in England are different. By the way, you do know time on earth and time in heaven is different, right? They don't keep calendars in heaven like we do. Anyway, time in Narnia is different from time on earth. So um, when they get sucked back into Narnia, 1,300 years has passed since they left, since they were king and queen. But that becomes apparent in, in the story. And that's why the, the, the Narnians are in bad shape uh, at the beginning of Prince Caspian. They're being ruled by the evil Telmarines. Uh, Prince Caspian is actually, is actually a Telmarine, one of those evil human beings, one of those evil sons of Adam that ended up in Narnia. Uh, but he's a good Telmarine. He's a good son of Adam, and he is the rightful ruler. So he will end up delivering Narnia from the Telmarines. He will end up delivering Narnia from the new Narnians. And uh, I will get them back to their glory days, which are sort of like the glory days when the four Pevensey children and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, first went to Narnia and became kings and queens in Narnia. So that's sort of the story. Let me give you three. This is what I don't want you to do with your children and grandchildren. Let me give you three big ideas about the Christian faith and about life that C.S. Lewis hopes you'll pick up. He was actually asked one time in a letter, and he answered, you know, to, 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 give, to give one sentence as to what each of the Chronicles was about from a Christian perspective. And I'm grateful for that. It probably oversimplifies things. But he said that Prince Caspian, this book, is about the restoration of true religion. Because 1,300 years have passed, Narnia has gone downhill, true religion has faded away. So it's, it's a story about Prince Caspian and the old Narnians restoring true religion. Um, kind of hold on to that. You know, in the Christian faith, we have to reform, renew, revive every so often. Because what happens in the Christian faith, um, we, we fade away from the, the, the faith once delivered by the apostles to the apostles. So ever so often, that's why, you know, that's why we're always reforming because we fade away. Human nature being what it is, we fade away from who we're supposed to be. Well, this is a story of restoration of, of true religion, restoration of the way Narnia is supposed to really be. Um, what you'll notice at the beginning of the story is you You've got some just stories or rumors being told about old Narnia, you know, about talking animals, about trees that are alive, about trees that walk, about someone, a great lion called Aslan. Well, by the time Prince Caspian's a little kid, 1,300 years after the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, they're just being referred to as old wives' tales. So another major theme hopefully for Christians that are reading this, is after the restoration of true religion, a second major theme is C.S. Lewis would want you to come away saying, hmm, the old stories are true. 
the old tales are true. They may seem amazing, like someone walking on water, healing the blind, multiplying loaves and fish. They may seem fantastical, but he wants you to think, maybe the old stories are true. What you're being told that is old wives' tales is the language you'll find in the book, or C.S. Lewis wouldn't have called them, but maybe our culture would call them myths. What, what, what the culture thinks are myth and old wives' tale, maybe those old stories are true. And you find out in the book, yeah, what, there's still some old Narnians around. They've gone, they've gone into hiding after the Telmarines start ruling. They've gone into hiding. Caspian's going to find them. They've gone into hiding. And, um, yeah, Caspian's going to learn those old stories that some, a few people, his nurse and Dr. Cornelius would tell him, they really happened. They really are true. Um, so one of the things you learn about the Telmarines because they just, they look at the past, the, you know, thousand years before, and they say that's just old wives' tales. It never really happened. One of the reasons for that is that, and this is interesting to me, the Telmarines, this, these were humans whose heritage, they were pirates. They ended up in Narnia. You'll see that at the end of the book. They end up in Narnia. But these sons of Adam, these humans, these pirates who end up in Narnia, and they take over and they rule Narnia, they don't, they, they don't believe in the supernatural. That's why one of the reasons all the old stories the Narnians are telling, uh, they're just old wives' tales. They don't believe in the supernatural. The Narnians believe, the old Narnians, the original Narnians, the real Narnians, believe in the supernatural. Uh, but by the time 1,300 years pass and the Telmarines are ruling, things have changed in Narnia. and you know They're smarter now. They've gone through the Enlightenment. They don't believe in the supernatural. Now, what's fascinating about that, and you, you saw it in chapter 3, they, they don't like the woods. They're scared to death of the woods. And because somewhere they have a memory that those trees really are alive. But they're scared to death of the woods, and, and what they've done as a culture is they've kept everybody out of the woods by saying there's ghosts in the woods. So that's the only extent to which the, the modern Telmarines accept the supernatural. They're afraid of woods. And they, 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 they say amongst themselves there's ghosts in the woods. Um, anyway, so remember those three things. There's a lot of other subtext here. But yeah, the old stories may be true. Probably are true. Uh, think about our old stories in the Christian faith. Uh, These old stories may be true. Think about the fact that... Um, um, not only are old stories true, the restoration of true religion may be a return to the old stories. And then thirdly, and this is really true for all the Chronicles of Narnia, some more so than others. One of the reasons you'll notice in the Chronicles that um, there's a lot of knights and chivalry. You feel like you're in the Middle Ages. You know, they'll even joust. They'll, I mean, you feel like you're in the Middle Ages. Well, what was C.S. Lewis's daytime job? He was a professor of medieval literature. And he really thought the medievalists might have something on the moderns. At least the medievalists lived in an enchanted world. And what he meant by that was a world full of spirit. 
a world full of God, a world with demons and angels. You know, you looked up and you saw the heavenlies. We look up and see outer space, darkness. He looked up and saw the heavenlies. That's the, the way med- medievalists view things. Anyway, so you see a lot of, every time they fight, if you, if you go watch the movie Prince, Prince Caspian, uh, you, you know, it looks like medieval armies fighting each other. And you need to kind of think, put yourself in a medieval frame of mind, think King Arthur and all that stuff. One of the reasons C.S. Lewis does that, besides the fact he liked the virtues of the Middle Ages, loyalty, honor, chivalry, all those virtues. He liked the virtues. We Christians, by the way, need to recapture some of those. He liked those virtues of loyalty and honor and doing, doing your duty. Um, but he also wants you to understand, and this is why it's in all the Chronicles, if you're going to live the Christian life, you're in a conflict. And the most dangerous thing for you is not know you're in a conflict. You know, the most dangerous thing is to be in a war but not being willing to be in battle. That's the easiest way to lose the war. You know, I don't, I'm sure you've heard the old tales. The, the, the devil roams about as a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. The apostle Paul says, put on the full armor of God. Jesus says the devil is the God of this world. Jesus says the devil is the God of this age. I mean, if you don't feel the conflict between God and the enemy, between good and evil, you frighten me because you probably already lost. You need to be in battle because you're in war. You know, the world around you is not going to help you be Christian. I assume you figured that one out by now. It's been that way for 2,000 years and the Jewish faith for 1,500 years before that. If, if all is love and peace and kind and gentleness with you, yeah, the devil's got you exactly where he wants you. You're not even you're not even a target anymore. When you got a tar- when the enemy puts a target on your back, that's when you're doing some good work. But yeah, if you're just getting along to you know to go along, going along to get along, and not even realizing you're in spiritual conflict, you haven't read the New Testament. Um, yeah, remember as soon as Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, the Spirit leads him where for what. Leads him into the wilderness to do conflict with Satan. Hosatan, that's Hebrew for your adversary. Um, um, Diabolos is Greek devil, is Greek for um, the destroyer or the enemy of yours. Yeah, if you don't know you got an enemy, the enemy appreciates that. Uh, that's why C.S. Lewis wrote stuff like The Great Divorce and Screw Tape Letters and almost everything else he wrote to make sure you understand, because that Great Divorce and Screw Tape Letters shows you how the enemy tempts us. Yeah, nobody, you know, and that's why the enemy, the enemy doesn't usually for Christians, the enemy never tempts you by saying, you know, won't you wake up today and go murder somebody? Well, that enemy knows that's not effective. But the enemy... Read C.S. Lewis, read Great Divorce, read uh, Screwtape Letters. He says, that's not the way the enemy tempts us. He, he'll make a list like mother love. A good thing, mother love. But for those of you that are doing the Great Divorce with me, you'll see one mother who so loves her son so much that she'll take him to hell with her. Because she wants to possess him. She wants to have him. She can't live without him. So you can make mother love... Um, into a diabolical thing. C.S. Lewis would point out patriotism is a great thing, 
but it can be something diabolical too. Think about how the enemy tempts us. Think about the struggle. You know, think, you know, none of us ever wake up and think, well, I think I'll reject Christ today. But what happens is there's this slow, slow leak, like the air out of a tire, and before you know it, the tire's flat, and you just aren't where you were 20 years ago in your relationship with Christ. That doesn't happen. There's an enemy of your soul, if you don't know that. So that's why all the Chronicles of Narnia show these kids, show these all the good people in. There's a sword on the front of my edition of, of Prince Caspian. You, you, you got to put on the full armor of God. Go read Ephesians 6, 10 and following. You got to put on the full armor of God. Um, C.S. Lewis, and uh, uh, if I could require it of you, I would get you to read his. He wrote amazing hundreds of essays. One of his essays is, um, this, this, one of his essays is simply entitled, Why I Am Not a Pacifist. Um, I want to read that. Sometimes you have to go to war. Now again, C.S. Lewis lived through the bombing of England by the Nazis. He, he presented the mere Christianity talks to the people in London as Nazis were dropping bombs. Sometimes you need to go to war. And, you know, you can't just say, well, I'm a pacifist. I believe in nonviolence. Well, hopefully we do most of the time, but there may come a time... Prince Caspian, you've got to take Narnia back. Um, so that's probably the third major theme. Hopefully you see that throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. That you really do... Um, life is warfare. Life is conflict. Uh, you know, Paul talks about the struggle between the new man and the old man. Yeah. If you look at the 1948 cover of Time magazine that C.S. Lewis appeared on... He appeared on it after the screw tape letters were written. And if you look at this picture on the cover of Time magazine, there's like a devil on one shoulder and, a, and an angel on the other shoulder. I mean, if you don't know, if you don't know that there's somebody whispering in your ear to do some things that you shouldn't do, yeah, you probably already lost the battle and the war. So um, that's why some people in the modern era in which we're in, his books are too violent. They fight. It's like King Arthur. They're jousting. They do battle. Um, C.S. Lewis is saying, I'm just preparing you for life. I'm preparing the children for life. So um, anyway, so those are kind of three major Christian themes. Restoration of true religion. Uh, the old tales may be true. Well, I think they are. Um, I had somebody who once referred to my Bible as as my magic book. I think the stories are true. Sometimes the old tales may be true, and we're in conflict. Okay, let's look at some of the text. What I ask you to do, and you didn't really have to, um, if you had a chance to read the first three chapters, that's fine. If not, after I talk about it, you can go back and read the first three chapters. Uh, I'm going to try to... It's easier to brush a little. I want to be at Voyage of the Dawn Treader by July the 12th. If I get to the Voyage of the Dawn Treader a week early, I'll be really happy. Um, I, I don't mean anything disrespectful to Prince Caspian, but it's the background for the, some of the really good stuff in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So let me, let's just look at first three chapters. They're really very easy. Uh, start with chapter one, first paragraph. He, 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 
He hopes you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but if not, you don't have to because he's going to tell you what happened in the first paragraph. He's going to set the stage. Uh, look, at, look at the first paragraph, chapter 1, entitled The Island. We're back in England. We're back in England. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Again, you met them in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. A year has passed, and now Peter's 14, Susan's 13, Edmund's 11, and Lucy's 9. By the way, Lucy, the youngest throughout most of the Chronicles of Narnia in which she appears, she seems to be the most perceptive to Aslan. Even in this book, she will see Aslan when the others don't. Anyway, so once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and it had been told in another book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which he hopes you have read, uh, how they had a remarkable adventure. They had opened the door of a magic wardrobe. This is where he's helping you out in case you haven't read it. They had opened the door of a magic wardrobe and found themselves in a quite different world from ours. You can go to the um, Wade Center at Wheaton College and see the wardrobe. C.S. Lewis had. Anyway, that's the wardrobe. They opened the door of the magic wardrobe and found themselves in quite a different world from ours. And in that different world, they had become kings and queens in a country called Narnia. Uh, while they were in Narnia, they seemed to reign for years and years. But when they came back through the door of that wardrobe and found themselves in England again, it all seemed to have taken no time at all. Now, I hope you understand that we have this world and there's another parallel world to this world. hope you understand that as a Christian. Um, sometimes they touch. Uh, sometimes we find thin places in this world where the world to come touches us here. Uh, we have those spiritual experiences, those experiences of the divine, of God. But there's parallel worlds. Don't be shocked. It shouldn't be a shocking idea to you. There's parallel worlds. Uh, for us, it's um, the eternal kingdom and this earthly kingdom. For these children's books, it's England and Narnia. They're parallel worlds. And they touch each other occasionally. Um, they touch each other occasionally. And um, time is different in each one of them. That's why they, they went to Narnia and they reigned for years and years and years as kings and queens in Narnia. But they've only, you know, when they got back through the wardrobe, people hadn't even missed them. Time hadn't passed at all. Um, now, you know, but it's been a year at this point now. At any rate, no one knows that, that they had ever been away, and they never told anyone except one very wise grown-up. Again, back to the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, or the magician's nephew. That's Diggory Kirk. That's the old professor that they experienced in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe who wasn't closed-minded when the children talked to him about this strange new land because he had gone there as a child. Uh, that's why there was one very wise grown-up who understood. Um, that had all happened a year ago, and now all four of them were sitting on a seat at a railway station with trunks and play boxes piled up around them. They were, in fact, on their way back to school. So that's... That's where we're at. These four children sitting at a railway station in the Edwardian era, Downton Abbey. They're on their way back to school. School pops up a lot in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you read C.S. Lewis's story of his, of his uh, early years up to his conversion, it's, it's his book entitled Surprised by Joy. 
in that book, he, he served World War One. He kind of runs past World War One in a few paragraphs, but he gives you like five chapters about how bad his school days were. His parents sent him away. He was always in boarding school. Um, so C.S. Lewis went to his grave hating uh, his memory of schools and boarding schools. So um, here these kids are on the way back to school, evidently boarding school. They're getting on a train. Holiday, as English people say, is over. They're going back to boarding school. And then they get sucked back into Narnia. They're sitting there and they start feeling weird um, uh, impressions and um, they're they not real sure what's going on. But then all of a sudden, they're sucked back into Narnia. Now, you'll learn a little bit later, the reason they're sucked back into Narnia is the children, when they were there, uh, were given gifts by Father Christmas. Um, one of the gifts was a magic horn. And anytime the children blew that magic horn, help would come. Now, you didn't always know what kind of help. You, did not not, you didn't know what form that help would come in, but help would always come when you would blow that magic horn. Now, as an adult, C.S. Lewis is hoping you're thinking prayer. You may not know how, how the help will come. You may not know in what form it comes, but always know that God answers your prayer. He always answers. Help will come. God will not turn to death ear. Anyway, so when they were leaving um, Narnia, they left um, all their gifts that Father Christmas had given them, their magical gifts, there in Narnia. Um, Prince Caspian, you'll see it later in the story, ends up with the horn. So Prince Caspian blows it, and that sucks the children off of the train station's benches, and they find themselves uh, in the, um, back in Narnia. Now, if you look, um, the first illustration... In chapter 1, on my edition, and probably, probably yours too, it's on page 9, but it's the first picture. Pauline Baines drew all the pictures in the Chronicle of Narnia. There's still the pictures in the Chronicle of Narnia. I think it was back in the 90s, uh, one of the editions of the Chronicle of Nar Chronicles of Narnia, uh, they, they, they let Pauline Bain, who was still alive, colorize her, her sketches. Um, I think she was quite an artist. Says it was pretty pretty fond of her. But you see the first picture, you see where they end up at. They end up um, near the water with trees on one side of them and water on the other side of them. Um, they end up there. Um, they're hungry. They get hungry quickly. Uh, they only have all, only two lunches, sandwiches, went with them because the rest of the lunches were in the bags that were left on the um, railway station platform. Uh, so they got two lunches between the four of them, and they're, they're there, and they're, so they're hungry, it's hot. Um, they finally find apple trees, and apple trees. They start eating apples. Um, then you see another picture on my editions, page 13. They're in this wooded area, and they find a wall, like the ruins of a wall um, that's overgrown, that trees are around it. You know, if you've ever been with me, well, there's lots of places. If you travel Scotland and Ireland and England, you find some ruins of castles. 
If you go with me to Israel, sometimes we'll go to Nimrod's castle, which is a ruin of a crusader castle up uh, in the Golan Heights. So you, you can still go find ruins of castles. What you have to envision here is ruin of a castle, but there's a lot of shrubbery grown up. There's trees grown up. Uh, the apple trees are right up against the wall now. But they do notice that there's, there's a wall. They don't know where they're at. Um, they know they're in Narnia. They don't know where they're at. They start talking, now chapter 2, the ancient treasure house. They start talking about the weird feeling. Um, In 1951, C.S. Lewis has him saying it's a queer feeling. We might not use that word today, but that's what he calls it in 1951. They have this strange feeling about where they're at. You know, it's, it's, it's all overgrown and it's just in. And they actually even say at some point it reminds them of the castle at Caraparavale where they ruled as kings and queens in Narnia. It, it kind of reminds them of it, but again, they don't realize 1,300 years have passed because only years passed in England. So they, 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 they say it reminds them of Caraparavale, but it's overgrown, it's in disrepair, it's abandoned. Finally, Peter, the oldest one, realizes... This is Caraparavale. This is our castle from which we ruled. Uh, and then you'll notice, I'm sure C.S. Lewis enjoyed this, like on page 20, 21, we're still in the second chapter. He, goes, he uses reason to convince the other three, this is Caraparavale. Because again, it doesn't make sense. They've only been gone a year, they think. How could this happen to their castle? Um, but they finally realize it is Caraparavale the castle they ruled from. Uh, they, finally, um, find a, they finally realize they're sitting on the dais where they would have sat as kings and queens. Um, they finally remember that behind the dais was the secret door to the treasure chamber, and they start beating, they have to tear shrubbery and weeds and overgrowth away from the wall. They, they start beating on the wall, and they realize it sounds hollow. And that's when Edmund says, Great Scott, uh, it sounds hollow. Uh, they realize they found the door to the treasure chamber. They go down to the treasure chamber. In the treasure chamber, they remember that's where they left, except for the horn, that's where they left the gifts that they had received when they were in Narnia. Um, um, Lucy had been given a cordial, a little vial, like a perfume bottle, with some ointment that one drop would bring healing. You'll see that being used later in the story. Uh, You you see that um, Susan was given a horn along with the bow and arrow. She had lost the horn, though. That's why the horn's not here. Prince Caspian has it. You'll learn later. He blew it, the horn. That's why they're sucked back into Narnia. Um, uh, Peter was given his uh, shield and his magic sword. Uh, Peter's the oldest, so he's the high king. They get to rule in Narnia. If you remember the line of the witch in wardrobe, Edmund did not get a gift because he wasn't there when Father Christmas showed up because he was off cavorting with the white witch trying to get more Turkish delight. (laughs) So he didn't get a prize, but the others did. So they're, they're there in the treasure chamber. They've got their gifts back, except that horn that was lost. That's why you see another sketching by... Pauline Bain of, of um, you see you see Peter holding his shield. You see what's on the shield? A line. 
You know, by this age in Narnia, it's just like a legend. You know, old wives tell that there's a great lion who's son of the emperor beyond the sea that used to exist. Anyway, you see them there. Um, They're starting to remember who they were in Narnia. They were royalty in Narnia. You know, part of what we need to do as Christians, Jesus declares we're royalty. We're adopted into the royal family. Jesus declared we will rule and reign with him for eternity. You probably didn't wake up this morning feeling like royalty. You should work on that. Work on remembering who the Bible says you are, not who the, what the circumstances of your life say you are. Anyway, they start remembering who they are. Thank you. They start remembering who, who they are, their royalty. And as they remember that, by the way, they start acting like royalty. That brings you to chapter 3. And finally, some real action begins in chapter 3. You're going to encounter a dwarf. Um, there are three kinds of dwarfs in Narnia. There's red dwarfs um, that are pretty good, a little unique, different. There's black dwarfs who aren't the best people out there. And then there's another group called Duffers. That's for another day. But what happens, they're going to find a dwarf. Because what happens is they're here in this strange place that they've now figured out to be the ruins of Castle Care Paravel. They start hearing a noise, because again, they're right on the water. They start hearing a noise out on the water. And um, it's two soldiers. Again, in chapter 3, you see the, um, the sketching by um, Pauline Bain. You see the two soldiers with with a bag, a bag in their boat. And the children see that the bag is moving like there's a living creature in the bag. That's where the dwarf is, in the bag. So um, Susan takes her bow and arrow and shoots at those soldiers. They just, these, Chronicles of Narnia will help teach us how to be good. They, they come to the aid of what they somehow instinctively know is somebody being executed by these Telmarine soldiers. They don't, she doesn't shoot her arrow to kill them. She just wants to kind of help whatever it is in this bag that's trying to get away. So what happens, because she doesn't realize yet that all those Telmarines think these woods, they're on the, sh- on the shoreline. They think these woods on the shoreline are inhabited with ghosts. So when these arrows kind of come flying out of the woods, these strong soldiers freak out, and they sort of jump over, overboard, and um, so that kind of leaves the poor dwarf in the bag uh, all by himself. So the, the, um, the soldiers get out of Dodge because they think these are haunted woods and something bizarre is happening. And so they go get the bag, and lo and behold, here, here's a dwarf in the bag, which they remember from their previous days in Narnia. If you look on top of page, my page 35, um, you know, the dwarf thinks they're ghosts because they've heard that's what lives in these woods, are ghosts. Um, and then you, you see the dwarf described, because you will run into dwarfs at the top of page 35. Like most dwarfs, because I bet you don't know this, like most dwarfs, he was very stocky and deep-chested. He would have been about three feet high if he had been standing up, and an immense beard and whiskers of coarse red hair left little of his face to be seen except a beak night beak-like nose and twinkling eyes. Um, you see his sketching there on the opposite page, Pauline Bain's sketching of what a red dwarf would look like. So they rescue the dwarf. 
Um, I love this dwarf. His name, you're going to find out later, his name's Trumpkin. What I want you to keep a list of, what I want you to keep a list of is his, how do I say this? His interesting expletives. Like, for instance, his first one occurs on page 38. Um, um, The dwarf gave a low whistle, beards and bedsteads. Uh, He has alliterative expletives, like beards and bedsteads. You know, if you go through the book marking these, Trump's going to give you a lot of those. You know, that's better than Great Scott. You know, go out in society today and when something surprises you or excites you, say beards and bedsteads. And see what the people around you will do. But yeah, Trumpkin, you're going to get to know Trumpkin well. But here you're introduced to Trumpkin. You're not even told his name's Trumpkin. But you're being introduced to Trumpkin, this, this dwarf. This dwarf becomes the guide for these children as they go find Caspian. Um, he's, he's quite a character. You know, at one point um, he's talking about, you know, he's, he's grateful that he's been saved. And after he gets saved, like, like a lot of us, the first thing he wants to do is eat something. He says, you've no idea what an appetite it gives one being executed. Um, yeah, he's hungry. Who knows when he ate last? So, um, yeah, he's a character. The, all, you know, all these people are characters in the book. So um, here now the dwarf is with the four, four Pavinci children, and he's going to tell them a story. And he's going to tell them the story about Prince Caspian and what's happened in Narnia. And that's, that's the next three chapters. But this just sets the stage, gets the kids back in Narnia, gets a, a dwarf from that time period who's going to bring them up to speed on what's been happening in the last 1,300 years. So that's the text. Now, again, there's a lot of good books out there. You know, you can, you can make it a cottage industry studying just the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a lot of good books out there for adults that will help you find all the Bible and theology in the Chronicles of Narnia. So I, I, I did invite you to bring your Bible with you. Um, just a couple things I want to show you, some familiar texts, and that's part of what makes this fun, is I can just pluck out some familiar favorite text. I'll I give you two of my favorite texts about courage. Because I am convinced, C.S. Lewis was convinced even before he died, that Christians need to make more of the virtue of courage. I mean, we will back down. We will deny Christ. We will walk away from Christ. We will do anything to be accepted by our peers. You know, if you're going to live the Christian life, you've got to understand there's a conflict, and it's not always going to be easy, and there's going to be decisions. You know, we're told that we make 3,000 choices a day. That's probably true. All of those choices add up to our lives. We better pay attention to the choices we make. And every, as C.S. Lewis said, as you know from those of you in the great divorce with me, C.S. Lewis says every decision you make, every choice you make, either makes you more of a heavenly being or more of a hellish being. Which way are you heading? So we, we, need, to, we need to have the courage to choose rightly. We need to have the courage to say no sometimes, say no to ourselves. Say no to other people. We need to have the courage to say yes to those things that God wants us to say yes to. And not just be carried along by our emotions. Because again, think about the medieval period, the Arthurian legend. They do their duty. Our culture, one of, we, we, we're, we're an idol-making machine as human beings, but one of the great idols in our culture, you've probably heard me say it before, is, is emotions. 
We tend to do what our emotions encourage us to do, and we tend to not do what our emotions don't want us to do. And sometimes to do your duty to do what's right, to be loyal to Christ, sometimes you have to tell your emotions to take a giant leap, and you're going to do it regardless of how it makes you feel. And that's where courage and loyalty and duty, you know, Sir Galahad had to go out and fight for King Arthur. He couldn't wake up and say, well, I don't feel like it this morning. You know, I mean, there's something about loyalty and courage and the ability to do what's right that we need to make more of. So there's a, there are amazing verses throughout the Bible that will encourage us. One that I've noticed when we do senior high school graduates celebrate them each year, we ask them what their favorite Bible verse is every year, every year. At least one of those high school seniors will list this one as their favorite verse. And if you don't have a favorite verse, I've got kind of a list of life verses that I made sure to work on memorizing. If you don't have your list of life verses, I encourage you to make that list. If you don't have, um, and maybe start by putting this on it, it's the book of Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. You probably know this one. You probably remember who Joshua is. He's the lieutenant under Moses. He's the one that takes over after Moses dies. Moses cannot enter the land of promise. So it's his lieutenant Joshua who leads them into the land of promise. That great, great gift that God has given to the Hebrews. But that land happens to be full of Perizzites, Hittites, Hivites, Jebusites, all the other ites. So they've got to go in and take what they've been given. They've got to go in and, and, and take the gift that God has for them. Again, a lot of what God wants to give us, we have to possess. We have to take. We have to... We have to uh, access, you know, God's plan and God's gift in our life. They're not automatic. God wants some good things for us, but you may have to you may have to wander through the desert and enter the land of promise and take it from all those Canaanites that are living there. That's the way the spiritual life is. If you haven't figured that out yet, you know, you can't just be passive. Passivity. Passivity is one of the greatest dangers in the spiritual life. Uh, probably one of the persons in church history that has wrote most adamantly about the danger of passivity in the spiritual life is an 18th century preacher named John Wesley. Beware of passivity. Um, you know, sometimes you can let go and let God. Sometimes God may say, you go do it. And usually I say, well, God, I don't want to, you do it. And God may say, you go possess the promised land. You go run the Canaanites out. You know, so beware. Sometimes we can make passivity sound spiritual. I'm letting God feed the hungry. Well, think about that for a minute. We can't just let God feed the hungry. I mean, God may say, That's, I'm giving you that job. Again, what are the four Pevensey children doing in Narnia? They're ruling Narnia on behalf of Aslan, the lion. That's who we are. God is using us to do God's work here in the world. So passivity is dangerous. That's why I love to say, don't mean to offend anybody, retirement is not in the Bible. You know, just reinvent yourself. Find new ways to be in ministry. Find new ways to be used by God. Beware of passivity, which is another reason why we need to make more of courage in the spiritual life. So now that you're Joshua... This is um, God commissioning Joshua to do what God is telling Joshua to do. And, and Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, 
Have I not commanded you? I know God gets frustrated having to tell us the same thing over and over again. Have I not commanded you? And here it is. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Even back into Narnia, even back to do battle against the evil tail marines who think the old stories are old wives' tales. God will be with you. That's why he can be courageous. Let me give you one more that's a very popular, famous text. It's maybe in your list of life verses. I get asked to read this frequently at funerals. It's Isaiah 43. So if you want to turn to Isaiah 43, we'll end here. Isaiah 43. Because again, what's happening in this part of Isaiah, God is going to send the exiled Israelites back to their homeland. Well, guess what? They find like a care pair of veil. It's, it's, been, it's been destroyed. It's in disrepair. You got, you got jackals and hounds living in the streets. Uh, it's not a good place, but they're going to go back and rebuild the city. They're going to get to return to the homeland. And Isaiah is talking to them. So look what God says to them in Isaiah 43. This probably is familiar to you. If you know the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, uh, How Firm a Foundation is based on this text. Um, you can look at the introduction, first verse. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, here it comes. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I hope you've learned in the spiritual life, and I'll leave you with this to cogitate over, God will definitely let you be hurt, but God will not let you be harmed. God's got you. That doesn't mean you might not have to go through surgery. God will let you be hurt, but God will not let you ultimately be harmed. You can walk through the fire. You can walk through the flood. You know, I see some people who are so fearful, so intimidated by life. I mean, you put a menu in their hands at a restaurant and they're freaked out. That's more than they can handle. You know, don't let life intimidate you that way. You know, um, at least be as brave as this 14, 13, 11, and 9-year-old. These children are as they go back to Narnia. Find some courage. Uh, let's pray together. God, for time shared, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your great, great love for us. And we give you thanks for, for what you've called us to do. For who you've called us to be. And we thank you that you're present in our life to equip us, to prepare us for battle, for conflict. You are using us to do your work here in this world, a world that doesn't always want to receive what you have to offer, but you're using us to be your witnesses in this age. Give us the power to be courageous and loyal. Give us the spirit so that we can do our duty by you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.